Michael Ray. No. Sign of the Times. Definitely not. The Batman soundtrack. Oh, Star Wars is it? Uh, no. Same coming. I like it. Ah. Sade. Hello and welcome. You are listening to Goat or Go, a comprehensive and slightly opinionated look at the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. I am, of course, as always, your host, Wendy K. Welcome back, dear listeners, and welcome, music lovers. This show is first impressions about the the various spots on the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, not just from 2020, but also we're talking 2012 and 2003. So let's just dive right into it. We're looking at spot number 489, and boy, oh boy, do we have a Biggie. This is a monolith. This took me, this took me a little bit longer to sit through because some of these albums, and I'll get to them, are long as hell. We're going to talk about today Phil Spector and various artists' back to mono in parentheses, 1958 to 1969 in parentheses from 1991, Kisses Destroyer from 1976, and Steve Early's Guitar Town from 1986. I'm just going to start off by talking about Phil Spector and various artists back in mono, 1958 through 1969, and here's what Rolling Stone had to say about this album. When the Righteous Brothers Bobby Hatfield first heard You've Lost That Lovin' Feeling with partner Bill Medley's extended solo, he asked, but what do I do while he's singing the whole first verse? Producer Phil Spector replied, You can go directly to the bank. Spector built his wall of sound out of hand claps, massive overdubs, and orchestras of percussion. This box has hits such as the Ronettes' Be My Baby and the Crystals' Da Do Ron Ron, which Spector called Little Symphonies for the Kids. And this album in particular was also number 65 in 2012 and number 64 in 2003. Phil Spector, as a solo artist, I guess, it's kind of weird to call a music producer a solo artist, he also has a record called A Christmas Gift for You, which is at number 142 in 2012 and in 2003. A very significant drop for this compilation album. I actually, I question this album in particular because this album i'm not even entirely sure that this is an album if you try searching this up on spotify this album is an entire playlist so i listened to an entire playlist and let me tell you this playlist is about three hours long this is a long fucking playlist. So if you just did not have any clue who Phil Spector was, or you have heard of the hits such as Be My Baby, which I have talked about with the Ronettes previously on this podcast, if you want to listen to my opinion about the Ronettes, you can go check out episode 494 where it's the presenting the fabulous Ronettes from 1964. But this playlist not only covers the Ronettes, or the Righteous Brothers, or Darlene Love, 
or the teddy bears. It is every fucking person who probably has ever worked with Phil Spector in his career. It is a massive undertaking. If you wanted to know what Phil Spector and what the wall of sound was, but you didn't want to sit down and listen to all of the Ronettes, well, you are in for a treat because you get to listen to the wall of sound, the brand, the identity, the baby of Phil Spector. This album truly shows how ever-present this man was and how revolutionary this dude was. The thing about Phil Spector and the thing that I kind of took away from this album in particular is that the artist do not matter. I'm going to repeat that again. The artists do not matter. The singers, it doesn't matter who they are. The band members, doesn't matter. Anything that you wanted to know about their music, it all centers around this one guy and his brand. And his brand is loud, lavish, expensive sounding sound. I feel like what Phil Spector has done with the bands and the and the artists that he managed or he created music with, it kind of felt like the Monkees or One Direction or the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and New Kids on the Block, like, these bands aren't created as something to last. These bands are created in order to make money for the record company and the producer. I hope and pray to God that these artists got their due. They got whatever money that they got from this because these songs are so classic and they are so iconic in American pop culture and in American pop evolution. I cannot imagine if you get rid of Phil Spector and you get rid of his work, how devastating that would fucking be. On the flip side of this album, there's a lot of artists and people that kind of like, they don't stand out from one another so much. Like, the sound and the music that Phil Spector was making, listening to this album with the songs going back to back to back for hours, for hours on end, I kind of started to feel repetitive, or at least you started to notice the trend and the way that he constructed the song and the way that the hook was also the part of the chorus, the way that people sang the same instrumentation, the same big, gigantic sound. Like, again, like, the brand is so overpowering that the artists don't really make an impact. The only one who, I think, graduated from the Phil Spector Academy of Music is Ike and Tina Turner. And we're gonna have to talk about Ike and Tina Turner later in this podcast, and I look forward to actually listening to their music. What's really fascinating about Phil Spector is that listening to this album all the way through, it's t it took me two days to listen to this entire album in its entirety. Because of how many artists that he worked with and 
how long his career was, he can outdo himself on the same goddamn song, or he can take a song that one artist sang and then give it to an entirely different artist that he is working with, and it will be the same subject matter, chances are that group will make it better. So, very early in the album, Darlene Love sings Chapel of Love, and it's a completely different version from what the Ronettes sing, but you know what is not included on this this compilation album? The Ronettes version of Chapel of Love. But the song So Young and the song Not Too Young to Get Married are the same fucking song. They are the same song, but with two different artists that Phil Spector picked out and was like, you're going to make this song even bigger. So he is making money on top of money, and that is brilliant. It's so fucking brilliant. It's so, it's almost sleazy, but I, like, I cannot knock the hustle of fucking that. Like, I can't imagine if this producer went away, like, what would happen to pop music and pop culture. There were two musicals off the top of my head that I think directly are inspired by Phil Spector and his music, and that is Hairspray and Little Shop of Horrors. There is a song talking about bringing a boy uptown and him not having to care about life downtown because now he's successful when he's with his baby and everything. And it was just like, oh, so this is Skid Row. This is Alan Macon and Howard Ashman listen to this uptown song. And that's what Skid Row is. Cool. Great. Awesome. And not knocking that. There was also a couple of songs that I was like, this is a Phil Spector song? Really? Because I guess it just never, it never occurred to me that this classic song and the song that I've heard on the radio or I've heard people sing in lounge bars or, you know, on a cruise ship or whatever, like, it's so ingrained in pop culture. I'm like, this is, this is his song? Really? That's, that's fascinating. One of the songs was Save the Last Dance for Me, which, having done a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of research, isn't originally his, but a producer that he was an apprentice of created that song. And then Phil Spector decides that he's going to take this song, Save the Last Dance for Me, and make it a Tina Turner song, and boy fucking howdy, is it good. It is so goddamn good. And then Michael Buble does a cover of it? Goddamn. Wow. Wild, fam. Great time. And then I feel like, like, around this time, like, he got on board with some surf guitar and the Crystal song, Dadu Ron Ron, those words and stuff, they sound like they could have come out of a Beach Boys mouth. And I wouldn't be surprised if I'm not wrong about that. Also, I want to give a shout out to the line, there goes the bride as she walked out the door, or something very similar to that line. Because I heard that, I was like, oh, it's my lucky ball and chain by They Might Be Giants. But obviously, that line is also influential to <laughs> from Phil Spector. Another standout moment from this album was the cover of Zippity Doodah, which it's a good cover. This is the job of a good cover. I'm very familiar with the song Zippity Doodah because of Disney, and I think this cover of it makes it something entirely different. 
And if you played this version of Zippity Doodah, I don't think you would associate it with Song of the South necessarily, but then you would have to associate it with Phil Spector, and that is um, an entire problem all into itself. So you have a cover made by a producer who is a murderer from a movie that Disney doesn't sell or showcase in any way, shape, or form because of how racist it is, that is included on a ride that is going to be turned into in a completely different refacing and reimagining to the movie that had the first African-American princess in Disney history, which the song being inspired by an old racist minstrel song like Bad Idea Upon Bad Idea Upon Bad Idea Upon Bad Fucking Idea. Oh, the history of Zippity Doodah is, um... I would look it up just a little bit if you're really interested. I know I'm getting off on a tangent. But yeah, Zippity Doodah, like, grinds my gears a little bit. My oh my. <laughs> it's a time. Speaking of something that doesn't age very well, there is a song on this album called He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss and it is just as bad as you fucking think it is. I'm not, it's, yeah, it's one of these things where it's like, I'm not sure how this flew back in the day. I'm not sure if, like, people thought it was okay, but, you know, listening to it with a modern audience lens, this song does not sound romantic. It doesn't sound playful. And it's really weird that the first time that I've heard the lyrics, he hit me and it felt like a kiss, was from a Lana Del Rey album. And now we're having some problems with Lana Del Rey. Uh, well, you know, at least I can see where Lana Del Rey got her major inspiration from. Oh, buddy, what an inspiration. Wow, this is, this is rough. Just wanted to mention those things because I had a feeling it was going to come up. You know, I just wanted to bring it out there. I wanted to talk about it, to discuss it, because, you know, as a first-time listener of this music, I think it's important to kind of talk about things that make me uncomfortable, and, you know, I just want to put it out there that, like, for some things, I'm not supposed to take it with the modern audience lens, but you know what? I can only live in the present, this music is going to keep being revisited and keep being looked at, and so we have to be critical about the art that we consume and the things that we look at, and I don't think that is a political ideology, I think that's just a fact of life. Anyway, off of my soapbox, so would I say that this playlist, I'm not going to call this an album, it's a playlist, you can find it on Spotify, would I say that this playlist is a greatest of all time? Yeah. Yeah. This playlist is massive, and I think it is so important to listen to this just to get, like, the tip of an iceberg of knowledge about what this music is. And then do your own research about, you know, either, like, the way that the music was created, the way that the sound was created who Phil Spector was, who any of the bands were, any and all this information. But if you just came here and you wanted to spend some time and listen to Phil Spector music, 
and just have something to listen to, this is a fucking great album to fucking listen to in a car ride. It is long, you know, you might get tired after a couple of songs, but, like, if you wanted greatest hits, you got them. If you wanted to explore artists you probably haven't heard of, you got it. Do you want to hear evolution of a guy's career over extended periods of time? You got it. If you want to hear classics from Tina Turner and the Ronettes without having to listen to their own albums, you got it. This album is everything and more. We gotta move on. We gotta move on. I know I had to spend a lot of time on Full Spectre, but like, again, this album was three hours. It's a lot to talk about. It's so much to talk about. So don't hate me when I don't really talk about the other two albums, because one of them I've already talked about, and that is Kiss's Destroyer from 1976. If you want to know my thoughts and opinions about Destroyer, go check out episode number 496. I first want to start off by saying that if you remember, dear listener, I made the excuse or I made the comment about when I was first listening to this album. And I just want to iterate that listening to this album very early in the morning is a mood. I don't recommend it. I would say give yourself at least a coffee break before diving into this album. I would also suggest maybe listening on headphones would be a better choice than listening to your car stereo system. So there was a couple of things that I think I may have missed here or there. But the one thing is for sure, when I re-listened to this album, I skipped Beth. That was a sore spot, and when that music started to kick in, I was like, nope, I'm not listening to this. I can't. It's not a good song. And you know what? My listening experience of the album, so much better. So much better. I didn't realize, speaking of my car stereo system, I never noticed that Wanna Rock and Roll All Night is in the beginning part of Detroit City Rock, which I think is really wild. And also, when I thought that I didn't know a Kiss song, I obviously know that song. It's on every 80s radio station, but it's not the Kiss version. It's the Poison version. Not sure exactly why that version is somehow more popular than the Kiss version, because Kiss is big all into themselves, but whatever, it's fine. I love that little tidbit. I love that little that little prelude before getting into Detroit City Rock and that start of that concert. I also have never noticed the kid laughing in the God of Thunder song. <laughs> it was so weird. It was such a weird detail. But, you know, like, kids keep coming back into this album, especially that child choir in Great Expectations. So, like, I'm not exactly sure what the voice of a child is really doing. And on these Kiss records, I have, I have questions. Like, I don't know if I want to know the answer to. <laughs> yeah, that was a weird, that was a very strange little detail. I loved re-listening to the song, Do You Love Me? That song actually grew on me. I'm not gonna lie. I think it, I think it fit better into the narrative once I took out Beth. Um, <laughs> to the album closer, not a weird, weird turn that you had to drive back from. So, I got to really appreciate the line, love their seven-inch leather heels. The theatricality of Kiss is incredible. And the album closing with, like, concert goers just having a good time and being happy 
His album is a really good concert album, I'll say that. It also really sold me on... Kiss must have been a really fun band to see live. Like, I can't imagine, like, just it being so over the top with its lighting. I imagine a lot of, like, maybe red lighting or just bright, like, audience flashers during, like, key moments. I imagine, like, the makeup being crazy, the costumes being otherworldly, and people just kind of losing their shit over good rock and roll music. Now that everybody in KISS is old, and I don't think that they still tour or whatnot, correct me if I'm wrong, but damn, this album just kind of was like, I, uh, I kind of wish that, uh, I was around to go to at least a KISS concert. I guess I'm a KISS head now, uh, or what do KISS fans call themselves? I don't really know, but I appreciate KISS. I get it. It feels weird to admit that, but I feel like I get it. So, I'm actually looking forward to their next album, which I think is alive. But yeah, that was the shocking thing for me in this recording of this podcast is, uh, I like Kiss. Didn't realize I would like them, but here we are. (laughs) And then finally, the last artist that I get to talk about today is Steve Early's Guitar Town from... 1986. This album is also at number 482 in 2012. And boy, oh boy, boys, it's a country album. Here we are. So I don't know anything about Steve Early. And listening to this album, I got the distinct feeling that this, this seemed like a very odd album to me. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a fan of this album. It's fine not liking it, I guess. I will say, dear listener, that before recording, I usually like to write all of my notes down so I can, like, take a look at my computer screen and fill in the blanks whenever my mind goes blank. I know I started writing notes for Steve Early, and then all of those notes flew out the window. So I had to re-listen to a couple of songs that stood out to me, such as Good Old Boys and Someday and Little Rock and Roller, and I did actually finish Down the Road. By the way, if you have ever wondered how I'm taking my notes and stuff, I take my notes either on my phone as I'm listening to the song, or I'm writing an email to myself, so I have drafts upon drafts upon drafts of every list item that I have gone through so far. Maybe it'll turn into a Word doc. I'll probably make it a Word doc. I know Bruce Springsteen was an artist during this time, and I feel like Bruce Springsteen was a better representation of, like, American fuckuism <laughs> than the song Good Old Boys, which is a weird song because it kind of says, like, fuck the IRS and fuck banks and fuck these people, like, fuck these bigger entities in society that have fucked over my family, have fucked over my life, have fucked over my brother who's now waiting for welfare, and I'm eventually going to get there. But then we also like to include this one little detail about a dude from Iran. And so, like, I don't know why include that little tidbit in the song. Unless, do you have something against Iranians? Would love to know. Please Comment below. Let me know <laughs> why you uh, have a problem with immigrants 
in this country. A mentality that has unfortunately still been sticking around for a while. This album wasn't really my cup of tea. It wasn't something that I was, like, really looking forward to. But then again, you know, trying to get a better understanding of country music. Will I return to this album? Eh? I don't know. Like, the reference to Somewhere Over the Rainbow and Someday is nice, I guess. I will say one of the stupidest lyrics I've ever heard is, I got me a fearless heart, strong enough to get you through the scary part. What? Motherfucker? Are you kidding me? (laughs) You can't... I know it's supposed to be sweet, but also that is a stupid lyric. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) Speaking of something weird and possibly stupid... I bet I could do a goddamn thesis on the song Little Rock and Roller because of how fucking weird that is. Like, I'm assuming that this song is about... It's a song about this musician who's constantly on the road, and he's calling his family, and he's trying to talk to his son, and trying to talk about what's going on in his life, and what he sees around him, and how he promises that he'll be back at some point to see him, but you know, being on the road and being away from your family is taking a toll, especially since that kid is growing up. But I just have one question. Um, what's the tone I'm supposed to be getting from this song? Am I supposed to be sad for this guy? I'm also trying to imagine singing this song in concert. Like, it's such a singular experience. Like, It's a story, definitely, but it's also just, I don't know if I can relate to it. I don't know a lot of people who can relate to it right now. It's a very odd song to me. I think I will be thinking about this song for a while, even after I'm done thinking about Steve Early. But I will say, he does know how to stick the landing of an album. I will, I will give him props to that, because down the road is great song, not just because it ends the album, but it also, I think, it sounds interesting, and I didn't hate it as much as everything, so you know what? Props. Props to you, Steve Early. So those are my general thoughts and opinions. I know I talked for a long time about some of these albums more than others, but only one of these gets to move on and be the greatest of all time. (laughs) And so, without further ado, Good people, good listeners, good music lovers. It's not my great pleasure, but I think the album that is moving forward and is going to be considered one of the greatest of all time is, I've talked this up, Phil Spector and various artists back in mono, 1958 to 1969. This album is everything. It is the kitchen sink and more. I would say that this album... In relation to the list that I have going so far, I think that if I had to place Phil Spector and various artists back in mono, surprisingly enough, underneath B.B. King's Live in Cook County Jail and above your Rhythmix's Touch. I know, I know. It's, even if I did have problems with this album, it is still a big deal. And you know... This is what a compilation album should be. It should showcase the discography in a comprehensive way and shows off the biggest 
loudest works that you know of, while also showcasing works that have a lot of artistry that went into it that may have not gotten big, but are still kind of cool to check out and listen to. I definitely recommend this album. Listen, he's not going to make a shit ton of money off of music streams anyway. Um, you know, with the way that the music industry is right now, unless you want to, like, go and buy this album or CD or what have you, like, just stream it on YouTube. It's probably, a, like, a playlist on YouTube you can find. And on Spotify, like, I'm not sure about the royalties of it all, but it's li- it's literally going to be nothing. Anyway... That's all I have to say about this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, remember to follow me on social media. And uh, if you want to contribute to my Patreon, that would also be fantastic. But either way, thanks so much. And DJ, let's drop that track. Goat or Go is a podcast created and hosted by me, Wendy Kay. I also edit the podcast. Original artwork is by Paige A. Special thanks to the entire Rolling Stone magazine writing team. Without you, there wouldn't be this podcast. Follow the podcast on social media, Goat or Go Pod. If you want to support the show on Patreon, link is in the show notes. Thank you so much, music lovers. Keep on listening, and I'll see you next week.